A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this is going to be part two in the great American Jewish uh, city's Lower East Side. Um, we started part one, and now we're going to do part two of the Lower East Side. So, talk a little bit about, again, some more institutions and personalities and life and overall um, I mentioned in passing in part one of MTJ, Sister Teferis Rishalayim. So it's originally founded as an elementary school in 1907. And later on in the 1920s, the high school is added, and then a post high school is added, and then a smicha uh, um, is added. And they had um, eventually they hire Rabbi Shah Feinstein, who becomes synonymous with the place, but he was hired by the uh, by the MTJ, by the board, by the whoever it was at MTJ, and uh, to be the Rosh Hashiva. And it's interesting that he he said once that he did not like that the fact that the that the Shachris and Shabbos morning was nine o'clock in MTJ, and he had a wave davening earlier at home. But he said, but that's what the they wanted when and they were the ones who decided the time when he was hired. That's what it was, and there was no way for him to change. In other words, he saw himself as. Not, not even even as the Rosh Hashiva for many years he was and the and the, the and the greatest Torah leader alive probably he wasn't able to change the time of Shachris because it wasn't his institution. Um, in fact, uh, again, Ramesha Feinstein we could talk about forever, but I just want to, in the context of MTJ in the Lower East Side, mention one or two things. Um, Ramesha. Uh, described the memory that uh, someone once asked Ramesha, why don't they have the custom that's brought down in many of the Svarim of Erevium Kippur of, of getting the a symbolic Malchus, of getting lashes uh, of symbolically in Erevium Kippur that, uh, to, you know, as a way of, of, uh, of uh, recognizing the, you know, the greatness of the day to atone for sin and whatever the sources of the custom were. But in Europe, in every little shtetl, it was a very common custom. In fact, in some places, the Gabai would try to get back at some people and give them an extra strong uh, amalkis when, when he would get an Ervin Kippur in some shtetls, shtetlach. In any event, Ramayish said was asked why they don't do it anymore. So he said, I don't know. 
But I want to tell you that when I came to MTJ in 1936, the old Shamish of MTJ still gave, he dished out the Malkus Erev Yom Kippur. We had it. And it was only with that old Shamish's passing that uh, that the custom stopped by us. There are some other great uh, Rebbeim and MTJ. For a period of time, the administrator, the principal, Menahel, was Reb Shmuel Greinemann, the brother-in-law of the Chazaynish, Talmud of the Chavetz Chaim, who worked for the Mir Yeshiva for a while, um, but he was also lived in, in America and, and uh, was in MTJ. Um, there was a fellow by the name of Reb Nachum Partsovich in MTJ, and he was the uncle of the famous Reb Nachum Partsovich, his father's brother. He was a Rebbe there. Of course, Reb Chaim Zimmerman was a Rebbe there for a period of time later on in Chicago, and he was a nephew of Baruch Ber, was a famous personality. Remechel Birnbaum in the post-war um, became the longtime mashgiach of of MTJ. Um, we have, like I mentioned, uh, Ritz started off in the Marian Polar uh, Shul as Zeitz Chaim, and later on becomes Yeshiva's Rebbein Yitzchak in 1915. Um, um, uh, Revel comes in, and that's the history of, of Rebbein Yitzchak which we'll have to do another time. Um, we had, we have the RJJ, which I also mentioned in passing in, in part one. But the, I want to emphasize the dominance of the school. Irving Bunim, the famous uh, communal activist, was, was the one who ran the school for many years. He was the administrator, the president of the school. Later on, it was Marvin Schick, who just passed away recently. Had some incredible rebellion. Um, like Rabzadel Epstein or Mendel Kravitz, many other uh, Gedali Stroll were rabbis there. Definitely also needs its own episode. A lesser known yeshiva on the Lower East Side was Yeshivas Rab Shleimer Kluger, uh, the Galicia, uh, Jews with origins from Galicia, named their yeshiva after the great uh, Rav of Brody. And uh, it was a yeshiva that lasted there for a while also. Many of the original um, Jewish organizations who had their headquarters, were founded and had their headquarters on the east side, Ezra Styra, which was um, led for decades by uh, one of the prominent east side Rabbanim, Rabbi Ohenkin, who also had studied in Slutsk and uh, and was the head of Ezra Styra for many years. Paisik, also a figure on the lower east side that's, that's uh, worth talking about. But the Ezra Styra, which supported Torah scholars in Europe and was founded because of World War One, so they they were based on the Lower East Side, and their influence was on Lower East. It was ostensibly to fundraise for and support Torah scholars abroad, but um, uh, what it ultimately happened is it had a major influence on American Jewish life, mainly because of Rav Henkin and uh, and the calendars that he printed and the and the halachas, the piske halacha that he put out um, through Ezra's Torah. The Agudas Rabbanim was headquartered on the Lower East Side. Many of the Eastern European yeshivas, when they started opening American offices to enable them to fundraise better, the offices were inevitably also on the Lower East Side. So you have all these institutions of religious Jewish life. You have all these interesting rabbis, like I mentioned a few of them. There are more. Um, we mentioned Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, the, uh, the chief rabbi in World War I. You're talking about someone who had studied in Valazhin, was also a student of Rabbi Stroll Salanter in the Nevi Ezra Kloys in Kovna, and he's the Vilna Magid, and he's hired to be the somewhat chief rabbi, which didn't work out. He tried to make order in the in the um, 
kosher meat industry and the butchers revolted and they made his life miserable. The butchers essentially controlled the chief rabbi because they were the ones who paid his salary and he had a tragic ending. Of course, we'll have to have an episode about him as well. One of the uh, amazing people who came to the Lower East Side in 1927 was the Bayana Rebbe, Rebbe Martcha Um uh, Friedman, uh, the Bayana Rebbe, the fourth son of the Pachar Yitzchak of Bayan, and he settles on the, one of the early Rebbes to come, and he opens the Bayana Klois. He's here, and, and his Bayana Klois, which still exists, um, is, is one of the oldest and most prominent uh, Hasidic Shtibels in the, in the Lower East Side of a prominent Rebbe of a major dynasty who led it, and he becomes a major active player in Jewish life, and the Agudas Rabbanim, in the Agudas Yisrael, which comes later in the Vat Hatzala, and he and he um, uh, he was a a major leader, along with later his cousin arrives, the Kapishnitz Rebbe, Rabbi Mishu Heschel, who also uh, stayed at, settled, set set up a shop on the Lower East Side, and he becomes a, a major fixture of Jewish life there as well. Um, even if we take even another another few years later after the war. And another Hasidic Rebbe we have, a Hasidic Rebbe we have, Rabbi David Yitzchak Isaac Rabinovich, the Skolyar Rebbe from the Ukraine. A very, very holy Jew and had a very good relationship with Ramesha Feinstein on the east side. These allegedly even went study together and uh, also a, a special man. One of the early Rashi Yeshiva of MTJ was Rabbi Yehuda Sachs. And he also was on the Lower East Side. And his distinction and claim to fame was that he was a brother-in-law of the altar of Slabatka. His sister was married to the altar of Slabatka, Rasasi Finkel. Um, I mentioned in part one, Harry Fischel, the great philanthropist. So there's plenty more to say about him. I just want to add on that he was the vice president of the base Merishagal. But what's more important, and we talked about how the Lower East Side was a... the the immigrant community and all the immig- Jewish immigrants coming through Ellis Island. So in 1911, he gets a he convinces President Taft to get a uh, authorize the opening of a kosher kitchen at Ellis Island. Today we're worried about kosher hot dog stands at at stadiums, and if you can order Carlos and Gabby's at Madison Square Garden. But in those days, what was important was that you know sometimes they kept. Uh, they kept immigrants in quarantine. Sometimes they kept them in holding bay for a couple of weeks, and these people wouldn't have kosher food. And very sometimes, what would even happen is is that they were kept in this holding station to check their health, to make sure they're healthy. They don't want anyone with diseases coming into the United States. And they would be there for two weeks. There wouldn't be kosher food, so sometimes religious Jews would not eat, and they would barely eat anything for, besides their fruits and vegetables for those two weeks. So they're very weak, and then they go for a physical. They're weak. They they look weak, and they caught something because they're weak. So they look as they're sick. They're sneezing, whatever. So they get sometimes they would even get shipped back to Europe for the only reason being because they didn't have kosher food. So Harry Fischel, one of the many many amazing life of accomplishment, one of the on the long list, one of them is to get this kosher kitchen. One of the residents of the Lower East Side for a short period of time was Aaron Kagan, the. Uh, Youngest son of the Chavitz Chaim, who lived on Broom Street, who, who his antics in trying to fundraise for the non-existent Tzadik and Yeshiva that he, that he claimed to have, uh, took place on the Lower East Side. 
Um, we mentioned the Jewish mob, uh, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, and the Italian mafia, Lucca Luciano. Their, their, uh, their uh, union came on the, lower, the streets of the Lower East Side when they joined together. Um, one of the famous East Sider personalities, um, part of the Yiddish theater scene, George Gershwin, a great songwriter, musician, he grew up, uh, grew up in Lower East Side and composed some of his best music there. He only moved to L.A. in literally his last years before he died very young, even in his 30s, when he died of a brain tumor. But um, Gershwin grew up in the milieu of the Yiddish theater. There was a Yiddish theater district on the Lower East Side where there was one Yiddish theater after another. And, you know, recently I think, uh, I think uh, George Pataki or Michael Bloomer, one of them, like 15 years ago, wanted to get some funding to support the last Yiddish theater to try to keep it open in New York City. You're talking about a period of time where there was literally tens of Yiddish theaters. It was the flourishing of that culture. So George Gershwin started there. And uh, his father was was involved with the Yiddish theater. Um, and in that context, it's interesting, in the modern day version of that, Sidney Lumet grew up on the Lower East Side. And, and, uh, and, and throughout all his years in, in Hollywood and everything, he emphasized New York, very Jewish, very New Yorky, all of his, all of his directing, um, 12 Angry Men and, and, you know, and, and uh, one, you know, videos like, uh, films like that. And one of his most famous pictures, famous because it was a flop and it was not successful at all, was a lousy film. But it was the Stranger Among Us, which was the first time that there was a visibly Hasidic theme uh, in 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 Hollywood, and it was shot on the Lower East Side at the Elgin Street Synagogue. So he, Sidney Lumet, uh, maybe is a modern uh, incarceration of of the old Yiddish theater, perhaps. Uh, the Marx Brothers, Groucho and, and and Chico, and all the Grouch Brothers grew up on the Lower East Side. Jackie Mason. Uh, of course, did you're talking about the Jewish comedy scene, the Jewish acting scene, the Yiddish culture. Shalom Aleichem, who in his last years lived in New York City, he lived in Harlem, but his fans were all on the East Side. He would come down there. Yakim Tzunzer was a Yiddish poet. A lot of people who who left their imprint in the immigrant culture, and you have to go back to that culture, and you have to also understand how all these yeshivas and rabbis developed in the same 10, 20 block radius as all this Yiddish culture and everything else is developing. There's a lot of diversity and it's all on top of each other. It's not like it was back in Europe where it was one place, you know, if, if there was a lot of Haskalah in Odessa, but Odessa was far away. And here in, 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 the, in the dense populated uh, Lower East Side, it was, it, was a, it was all right on top of each other, which brings us to the next stage, which is the economy of the Lower East Side, together with the development of socialism and the labor unions, which all happened there. The textile industry was the main pull for the immigrants. One of the reasons that the great immigration happened was because the textile industry was developing in New York at the time, and there was almost, what seemingly endless jobs available for all the new immigrants. And uh, the sweatshops. And um, this invited, um, you know, many of them had jobs, but it was treacherous conditions, um, terrible working conditions, the long hours, very little pay, six days a week, uh, which obviously included Shabbos, which is, which is why um, the, 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 all the famous stories that we grew up with about 
having to work and not having to work, and they did work and they didn't work, and that was the challenge. But um, as far as the the immigrants are starting to organize themselves. First, they organize into what was, and this all happens on the Lower East Side, in the tenement buildings, in the courtyards of the tenement buildings, in the basements, into Landsmannschaften, into people who came from a similar area back in Europe. They would gather together, and it was a social fraternity. First, it was just moral support and group therapy, before group therapy was coined. And, uh, and eventually, they, many of them built shuls together. Many of them um, tried to have afternoon Talmud Torahs for their kids together, and some of the more brave ones even opened the yeshiva together. And, uh, and, um, and they also organized in, in, to help each other with jobs and to help each other with insurance. One of the, one of the famous Yiddishist organizations at that time that's founded is the Arbeiter Ring, the Workmen's Circle. Now, the Arbeiter Ring, which was very secularist and anti-religious, but it was founded as essentially a form of insurance, that there was no pension, there was no uh, disability insurance, there was no workers' compensation, none of that existed then. There was no nothing to help the laborers, and these immigrants who barely knew the language, if they got fired or injured or anything happened to them, they were done. And the Arbeiter Ring was founded to be able to you know, that you paid your dues, you paid your fees, and you were part of this organization. And this way, they paid out to people who were needy, who were members of of the of the ring, of the Arbeit ring, which, of course, is why the Bund, the Bund which started in Vilna in 1897, and it's active in Poland and active in Russia until the revolution. And, and it's a major political party in interwar Poland. It's active in the streets of New York. And they have their own newspapers, and Jewish socialism becomes a major player in the scene of Lower East Side. You have um, two yeshiva, ex-yeshiva guys who are the leaders of the emerging labor movement in America. David Dubinsky, who studied in Valazhin, and Sidney Hillman, who studied in Slabatka. And this is the organization of Jewish labor. They're both in the labor unions of the garment industry, the ladies' garment industry, and the United, I don't know, I forget the titles, the official long, like six or seven word titles. And they're the first unions, and they are huge unions. And they and they are basically all Jewish. And they and eventually they come, you know, represent Italian workers also, and they eventually expand. But Jewish labor is started by um, yeshiva alumni, who come to America, who had embraced socialism, and because of the failed revolution in Russia, they saw that socialism was not going to work there, the czar is too harsh, we're going to do it in America. And how American Jewish socialism takes on a very... Today, socialism is a bad word. And if you say, you know, socialist, oh, socialism, yeah, and people get all, all uptight and angry at you, in those days, socialism was a savior for the Jewish masses. Socialism didn't mean progressive or liberal values uh, like it means today. It meant helping immigrant workers survive and not being crushed by, by the corporations, giving them basic rights, basic um, you know, minimum wage and working conditions. The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911, which killed people, mainly Jews, mainly Jewish women who were working in the factory, in the sweatshop. And that was a turning point in American labor. It was literally to save lives, people, families from starvation, giving them the basic things that they had. And that was the organization of these labor unions. And 
it was so different than the Jewish socialism back in Russia. The Jewish socialism back in Russia, which is also a topic that hopefully talk about one day, um, was to free the Jews from the Tsar and to give them equal rights, emancipation, citizenship, like their counterparts in Western Europe. And, uh, and, and because it was all illegal, because the Tsar did not want revolution or the radicalization of the Jewish street or anywhere, so they, it was all underground, it was all in secret, and it was all very ideological and debates about how socialism should, should look, and, and it was very theoretical, and very, a lot of rebelliousness, a lot of revolting. The immigrants, these same Jewish socialists who now arrive in the Lower East Side, they are confronted by a, a vastly different reality. They come to a free country where you can do whatever you want. You want to organize unions? You can organize unions. You want to promote socialist values? Go ahead, promote. You want to write it in your newspaper, in your own language, in Yiddish? Go ahead. And because of that freedom, it wasn't radical, it wasn't revolutionary, it wasn't against anything. And because it was helping people who were in the workforce, who were trying to bring over their families from Europe, it became very practical. There was very little ideology involved. It was very practical. It was seeing how we can organize labor and how we can make it happen. And I'm going to move on to the next thing, thing because I imagine that talking too much about labor and socialism is going to bore people to death. So you have the part of the economy is the, the pushcart scene, Orchard Street and Hester Street. Um, you have, uh, going back to what I mentioned in part one about Rabbi Herman, he has the, he organizes the Agudas Balabatim um, to encourage the pushcarts to close for Shabbos. And eventually when he raises enough funds, he is able to pay them to close for Shabbos. Um, some of the institutions that were on the Lower East Side. So the, one of the major uh, institutions that both assisted the, uh, the, um, the, Jew, the uh, Jewish immigrants was and, and Americanized them was the Settlement House. It was a novelty. It started in the early 1900s. But the Settlement House was a library. It was a place for children to come. It gave them extracurricular activities. And it and it gave them all the American values, and it tried to keep them away, not in the tenement courtyards where there was bad influences from the street, and 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 they felt it would bring them to a life of crime, and also and also the poverty and the hygiene, and and uh, and the settlement house uh, became a fixture on the Lower East Side. Um, I mentioned the the. Uh, the um, the Yiddish the Yiddish press, so the the Yiddish newspapers were very popular. One of the most famous Yiddish newspapers was the Forwards, the the Jewish Daily Forward, um, which was socialist, moderate socialist. It was Yiddish, and it was founded in 1897. One of the main founders who became synonymous with the newspaper was Abe Khan, Abram Khan, who grew up in 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 a, in a shtetl in, in in Belarus, and in and he attended yeshiva. He came from a from religious home, and he becomes radicalized and embraces socialism. And in 1882, he immigrates to the United States. He stays the rest of his life in New York City, and he um, and he's involved in in, in 15, six, uh, 15 years later in founding 1897, founding the Forwards, which becomes a 
It's a seminal event in American Jewish history to a certain extent. The influence that it had at its peak at 275,000 newspapers in circulation was probably the most successful and influential new Jewish newspaper in history. More than Hamelitz in the, uh, of Tsiderboim in the Russian Empire and any other newspaper. And he supported labor like Dubinsky, like what I mentioned earlier, but he was moderate. He wasn't a radical. And, uh, it's interesting, the year 1897, just want to point out something in the greater context of Jewish history, not related to the Lower East Side. 1897 was the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. 1897, the Bund was founded in Vilna. 1897, the Forward started getting published in, uh, in New York. Three major events of the, uh, the modern era of Jewish life, the I guess we could call this, I don't know if it's specifically the movement towards secularization, um, the alternatives that Jews, uh, young Jews were looking for um, in the modern era. Um, so this is a shift away from traditional Jewish life. And those are three major events that happened that year. And interestingly enough, there were two other events that happened that very same year. That was a renaissance in Jewish life itself, to strengthen Jewish life to traditional Jewish life. And that, uh, that is, of course, the uh, Musser and anti-Musser debate that broke out in 1897 in Slobodka, Novartic, and other places, um, which led to a flourishing of Musser yeshivas, and even non-Musser yeshivas flourished as a result and the second thing that happens is the founding of the Taimchei Tamimim Yeshiva in Chabad, the Rebbe the Rashab. So it's interesting that it's just at that turn of the century that there is a resurgence of traditional Jewish life and there's all these alternatives that are springing up also. But if I get back to the Forverts, um, so Abe Khan, who becomes a legend in his own time, the champion of Yiddish literature and the Yiddish press and and the common man he used to he used to bring a, a draft of the newspaper to the doorman or the elevator man, whoever it was, and ask them to read an article. And you know, it was talking about an uneducated immigrant usually. And and if he if the language the Yiddish was too sophisticated, he would go back to his editors and writers and say, "You have to dumb down the language. Our our newspaper is for the common man. We want everyone to be able to relate to it and understand it." And he had the greatest writers submitting articles. Isaac Bishop Singer uh, wrote for him for a long time. Even Leon Trotsky would submit articles from afar. Uh, Morris Vinchevsky was a prominent Jewish socialist. Later on, when he sees that a lot of his readers are religious, uh, you think Abe Khan, it's a Yiddishist, socialist, somewhat, you know, definitely not religious. Some would even say it's an anti-religious slant, not like some of the other more radical newspaper, Yiddish papers then, but definitely did. But he sees that a lot of his readers are religious. So he says, you know, I'm here to service the readers. He obviously, of course, wanted the newspaper to make money. So he hires after the war, or during the war, he hires Aaron ben Sien Shurin, a famous legendary journalist, and Talmud Chacham is from Ritava, and he studied in Tells and Lumsha and other places. And he remains at the newspaper for over 60 years. He worked at the Forwards. He hires them as the religious correspondent, and he writes about G'dayli Yisrael, and he writes about Eretz Yisrael. He writes about all these religious issues, and he, and he remains there longer than anyone else. And he, uh, so he was, that was the, the Yiddish press. Of course, you can't talk about the Lower East Side without talking about the food. 
the knishes uh, and the bakeries and, you know, the delicatessens when they asked Lucky Luciano when he was exiled to Sicily after World War II, he was interviewed. He said, what does he miss most about New York? And he said, I miss the Delancey Street corned beef. And, uh, of course, the Jewish delicatessen, originally, they were most of them were kosher. Eventually, many of them become kosher style. And the most famous deli in the world is on 2nd Avenue in, in, uh, in, uh, in what was then the Yiddish theater district, Katz's Deli, which is not kosher at all. But Katz's Deli is, is definitely very Jewish. It's a, it has the Jewish foods and the corned beef and the hot dogs and all these uh, features of, of the Jewish foods that developed on the Lower East Side. And like the pickles. Gus's Pickles, which today is famous as being from the Lower East Side, when it opened, there were 80 other pickle stores in the three-block radius where Gus's Pickles opened. And they developed a very unique style of pickle that became the New York-style kosher pickle. So the, the, uh, the, um, the, the, pickle, the pickle develops there, too. Um, the, so the... I'm holding here. The... Um, Excuse me. The, so the 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 culture and the food and the shuls they're all developing at the same time at a fast paced um, uh, at a very fast pace and at the same time you have these like I mentioned the people like the Biana Rebbe and Ramesha Feinstein and Rebbe Henkin who are trying to build up the religious life there and RJJ and Rebbeinus Tikkun and MTJ this combination. Of having um, every type, the the it could only fit in with the milieu of the immigrants streaming in, and that leads me to the what what eventually is the decline of the Lower East Side. The decline happens in several stages. Um, the first decline is from 1924 to 1939. The immigration slows to a trickle. Um, the Johnson Act of Congress makes uh, immigration brings it almost to a complete standstill. Very few immigrants can come after that time. And there's not that constant flow that completely fed the life of the immigration life. The residents of the Lower East Side, especially the younger, the second generation, they start moving out. Moving out of town in those days meant to Brooklyn or the Bronx or to other parts of Manhattan like Harlem and uh, you know the Upper West Side, depending where. And uh, and that and that um, I'm talking about it's still in the pre-war, right? In the 1920s and 30s, I'm talking about the post-war where they moved to the suburbs, to Long Island and Westchester and New Jersey. That happens after the war. But in in the already in the 1920s and 30s, the second and third generation, the ones who came in the 1880s and 90s, their kids are moving out of the East Side. Their kids went to public school. They're not going back to the Polish Stiebel, and they're not attending uh, MTJ. They went to public school and they're moving out. So the immigrants move out. The son, children of the immigrants move out. There's not enough new immigrants coming in. The second generation is not speaking Yiddish. Socialism isn't as important to it. Um, although all their kids, of course, vote Democrat. That's a given. Uh, but but there becomes a decline in the active Jewish life. That's the first stage. Already in the pre-war, there's a... a Again, the, 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 the contrast between 100,000 new Jews arriving at the Lower East Side every year and that slowing to just a couple of thousand becomes a stark contrast. And for a neighborhood that relied on the immigrants arriving, that, that signified a, 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 a change. 
The second decline, of course, happens after the war. Um, in the 1940s, there's a move out of the city. There's the, the white flight, um, and the moving out of the city, they're moving to the suburbs, and the, the, the neighborhood actually goes into decline. Um, there's an economic decline, uh, stores close down, the garment industry changes, there's no one in the factories anymore, not in the city, the whole factory culture changes in the 1950s, and the immigrant culture goes out with it. The, um, the immigrant culture of the Yiddish theater, the immigrant culture, even in the religious sense. So RJJ eventually has to move out to Staten Island. It's one of the last holdouts. Um, of course, even before the war, Ben Yitzchak moved uptown to Washington Heights. But Reb Moshe Feinstein, he stays, and MTJ stays, and they become the neighborhood. And, and from the 1950s and on, at least from a religious perspective, when we think of the Lower East Side, it's Reb Moshe Feinstein. Of course, the Biana Rebbe was still there, the Scully Rebbe was there. Um, Rabtuvia Goldstein becomes a rising uh, Paisik, who's Ramesha Feinstein's neighbor, but Ramesha Feinstein becomes the uh, fixture and MTJ becomes a, a, a lot of the shuls even close down. Uh, a lot of the shuls go into disrepair. In, even in, uh, in recent years, some of the last shuls, the basement of Shagadl, burned uh, down, uh, all, not, not completely, but all, you know, significantly. Uh, um, uh, just recently. In fact, the Beis Merish HaGadol, it got a different rav after, after the war. A survivor of the Holocaust, survivor of the Kovna Ghetto, Rabbi Ephraim Ashri, who's famous for his writings and his stories and his history um, uh, of uh, his history of, 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 the, of Kovna and of, the, of Lithuania during the Holocaust, so Ephraim Ashri becomes, comes to the United States in the 1950s, and he becomes the rabbi of the Beis Merish Shagadol, and he leads it for 50 years. So the Beis Merish Shagadol in Norfolk keeps going, even though membership was in decline, and he actually was able to get the building uh, under the preservation of, as a heritage, whatever it was, uh, site during that time. So the Beis Merish Shagadol does last for a while with a prestigious rabbi, like a Befrayim Ashri for a, a long period of time. This is um, part two of the Lower East Side. I think we'll wrap it up here. Perhaps sometime in the future we'll do a part three as well, because literally it's endless what we can discuss and talk about and the stories that we have from the richness and diversity of Jewish life on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips, including virtual tours. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean and follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.